the summer of 1930, Nebraska Poet Laureate John Nyhart went to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota to speak with Black Elk, a Lakota medicine man who'd had a vision of saving his people when he was nine years old. Two years later, Nyhart published an extended narration of Black Elk's visions called Black Elk Speaks. During the 1960s and 70s, the book won new readers among the counterculture with its depiction of communal lifestyles, environmentalism, and spirituality. This is Nyhart reading a prayer by Black Elk. Look upon your children that they may face the winds and walk the good road. Teach me to walk the soft earth, a relative to all the live. Sweeten my heart. Give me the strength to understand and the eyes to see. Help me, for without you, I am nothing. I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is With Good Reason. Later in the show, we'll meet the author of a new book on the life of Black Elk. But first, the story of William Apis, who was a Pequot minister, author, and activist in the first half of the 19th century. Apis was the first Native American to publish narratives of his life. Drew Lopenzina, a professor of American literature at Old Dominion University, is the author of a new book about Apis titled Through the Indian's Looking Glass, a cultural biography of William Apis Pequot. Drew, you write that William Apis was widely known in his time, but so few people alive now have heard of him. When did you get hooked on Apis and his story? So I was, as a graduate student, my my dissertation was about how Native people acquired Western styles of literacy. We don't think of Native people as, as people who write. We think of them as an oral culture. So... I started digging into this, and I realized that right from the start of colonization, Native people were engaging in writing. They were finding reasons to write, reasons to carry their own traditions forward into writing. And as I followed this all the way through, this dynamic, and was surprised at how much material was there, but it all led to William Apis, who was the first Native American to write a book-length memoir and to publish it, A Son of the Forest, in 1829. And so for that alone, Apis is this really important historical and literary figure. More people should know who William Apis is. So he had, in 1833, he wrote a short piece that he entitled An Indian's Looking Glass for the White Man. It's kind of to hold a a mirror up to the white dominant culture and say, look at yourselves, right? You project all of this upon us as Native people, but look at yourselves, look at the hypocrisy. And it's reflecting that image back, that image of of racism and, and hypocrisy. This is from an 1833 piece that he wrote, and he imagines what if all the races of man were put together in one space, and in, in a sense were being judged in that space. And so this is what he writes in this piece. He says, Now suppose these skins were put together, and each skin had its national crimes written upon it. Which skin do you think would have the greatest? I will ask one question more. 
Can you charge the Indians with robbing a nation almost of their whole continent and murdering their women and children and then depriving the remainder of their lawful rights that nature and God require them to have? And to cap the climax, rob another nation to till their grounds and welter out their days under the lash with hunger and fatigue under the scorching rays of a burning sun. I should look at all the skins And I know that when I cast my eye upon that white skin, and if I saw those crimes written upon it, I should enter my protest against it immediately and cleave to that which is more honorable. And I can tell you that I am satisfied with the manner of my creation fully, whether others are or not. Help me understand the time period in which he was alive. So William Apis was born in 1798 in Coleraine, Massachusetts. He grew up in extreme poverty. He fought in the War of 1812. This is during the Jackson era, right? Andrew Jackson came to power, promising to remove all of the Indian nations beyond the Mississippi River for their own good, right? And so that's the, the great irony of this is that you can put such a benign face on such a, an act of, of utter cruelty. And basically, all of the nations of the East are, are pushed, violently pushed westward. What about his own people, the Pequot? Who are they? Where were they located? The Pequot are a southern Connecticut tribe on the Long Island Sound. The the colonists realized that the Pequot were in control of what's known as wampum. They realized this wampum, these cheap, worthless shells, actually had a great deal of value, particularly in the fur trade. And so they attacked the Pequot. They brutally slaughtered and hunted them down. And this, this was... Uh, arguably the first real effect of genocide in uh, colonial history in America. And the Pequod were, were riven apart by it, but they survived. You open your book with a very powerful story of his young life, that he was brutally beaten by his grandmother. Why is he not afraid to share that story? Doesn't he want his people to look good? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and so this was the danger of telling the story, is that the dominant white culture already thought Native people were savages, right? They already thought that they were uncivilized, almost beast-like. And so to reveal the story plays right into those stereotypes. But it, but this is, this is how we silence these things, right? And if you silence them, you can never combat them. And I think the rum, the very rum that enabled this is something that came from the white man and, 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 and that, that the hate that his grandmother was carrying, this burden, was not something that had anything to do with her Native identity. It was the hate that was projected upon her by this, this larger community and the history of it, the Pequod War, the attempt to obliterate your, your race. By 18, the 1800s, it's been almost 200 years of this incredible, violent abuse and, and fragmentation of Pequod culture. And I imagine Apis's grandmother carrying that terrible weight around with her because Apis's life isn't exceptional. It's the norm. It was the norm to live in extreme poverty. If you were an Indian child in the 1820s, the chances are you're going to be an indentured servant. And their families were destined to break up and be fragmented. The men had to go looking for work. Most men, if they could, they'd get on whaling boats and be gone for years at a time. Uh, It was a rough life for Native people, but not the life I think that people imagine that Native people are living. So after the War of 1812, you write, he returned to the Pequot people and lived with his remarkable Aunt Sally. Yeah. He has a rough time as an indentured servant as a child, but he runs away at the age of 15. He goes to New York City with a friend, 
and he gets conscripted into the army. He fights in some of the major battles of the war in 1812, which was really a border war between Canada and, and, and the U.S. Really uh, traumatic experiences that, that he, he's already, his whole life is, a, is one stream of trauma after another. But he comes back home and he hooks up with his Aunt Sally George, and she's this charismatic lay preacher. She sort of takes him in and makes him her protege, and she would hold these camp meetings once a month. People would come from all over, not just Native people. Poor white people would join these things too, and they'd go out into the woods, which uh, he calls the original cathedrals, and she would give these, I guess, forceful, charismatic sermons. And, and, And so when he leaves his Aunt Sally George and he takes that out on the road and starts joining up with the Methodists, you know, he finds his voice as a preacher, but he gets so much of that from his Aunt Sally George. What was he like as a Methodist minister? Did the whites accept him? Yeah, well, I I don't know if they accepted him. The Methodists were too poor to have their own churches, right? And so you'd meet in the woods. And and, and so this was something he'd he'd already been trained to do, particularly when you went to the marginalized communities, the black communities and the native communities, which were often the same communities. I think he was a very forceful voice in these places. And and he he had a lot of success converting people. And so when the Methodists had their conference in 1829 in Albany, Apis shows up and he says, you know, it, it's time for me to get my ordination. Look at everything that I've done. Well, they refused it. And, and I think it was difficult for him. But his success came from the fact that people were drawn. When, when you advertise in the papers and said, the, the Indian will be preaching on such and such a night. And people read that and they're like, I want to go see this, an Indian preaching. That was a novelty. And, and he would actually fill houses, I think, on that alone. And then he began to have a reputation as a, as a very forceful speaker. So was he forcefully bringing fire and brimstone down on the heads of white people, or was he using code and sort of biblical parables to try to speak on behalf of his downtrodden people? I think he probably evolved. The first sermon that he published was rather conventional. But by time you get to, for instance, an Indian's looking glass for the white man, where he is being extremely critical of what he sees as the hypocrisy of the Christian church. You know, that, that for over a century, the church has been saying, convert to Christianity, we'll, we'll welcome you in, and yet Native people are still neglected. They're, they're kept in poverty. They, they live under a system of overseers. And, and people don't understand this, but the, the reservation system in the East Coast, they weren't called reservations, but, but they basically were. And they were controlled by overseers who had complete control over the lives of the Natives, economic control, uh, control over the children. They could just decide, we're going to take your child and we're going to give him out and indenture him to a white family. There was nothing you could do about it. They basically lived under a system of complete peonage. And so this is what Apis was fighting and to, to argue for equal rights for natives. So when he comes and says, if you look at all the skins and gather all those skins together in one room, whose crimes would be the greatest? Again, he's holding up that mirror. To, he says, you know, you call us savages. Look at what you're doing and look at the harm you're causing. Can you even see it? You write about a key moment where he takes the side of the Mashpee Indians. Who are the Mashpee? Why do you call it the Mashpee Revolt? Yeah. So in 1833, he goes to Mashpee. It's a town on Cape Cod. This is where the Wampanoag had lived. And they lived under this system of overseers. And by this point, so Apis had been doing this now for a little while, and he'd, he'd learned some things. He, he'd learned what worked and what didn't work when he comes into town, when, when, he'd, when he'd come to advocate for the Pequod and for other Native groups. He'd 
basically been driven out of town. I mean, when, at one point, people had broken into his house and beaten him within an inch of his life. By the time he got to Mashpee in 1833, he asked the tribe to adopt him, first of all, which was weird, right? Because he's already a native. He doesn't need to be adopted by the Mash. But he realized if they adopted him, that nobody could call him an interloper, like, like he was an outsider. He's one of the tribe. Then he asked them to write up some resolutions right off the bat. He said, we're not going to let the white people come in and take our wood anymore, which had been legally uh, something that, that white people had been entitled to do is take Mashpee resources because the overseers allowed it, right? They wanted to put an end to this. So they said, no, this we're not going to allow this anymore. Starting on July 1st, we're going to make sure that nobody takes wood off our lands anymore. Then he went to the newspapers and he tried to publicize. He says, here's our resolutions. Here's what we're going to do. So he, he learned how to play the press. And by bringing it to the press, he made everything that they're doing transparent. Then he went to the governor. He said, we're showing you that this is what we want to do. So when July 1st came along, two brothers came into their uh, lands and started to fill up a wagon full of lumber. The Pequod show up and they say, no, you have to unload that. Now, this created an uproar. You can see headlines on this in Philadelphia, in Florida. I mean, p- papers all over the eastern seaboard are reporting about how the Mashpee Wampanoag are in revolt and fighting against the white people. And it, it's, it's all this, these claims that there's violence and uprising and, and trouble in the wigwam was one of the, uh, the headlines and, and all these sort of really uh, hyperbolic claims. But it was actually a peaceful revolt. And Apis even says, I made everybody understand we were not to say one negative word or, or threaten anybody in our action just to peacefully unload the wood. And so the governor almost sends out the militia to put it down. Calmer heads prevail and they hold a meeting in the meeting house and they hold a meeting there with the governor's agents and Apis preaches. And he says, we won't tolerate this anymore. And by the time this all came together, it's the 4th of July, interestingly enough. And Apis gets arrested for inciting a riot, which is really interesting. There was no riot. Apis goes to jail for it. And while he's in jail for a month, he writes this, uh, the Mashpee Memorial, which is, again, this bid for Mashpee to have the rights that all Americans have, to be able to control their own resources, to be able to control their own families, to lift the Mashpee people out of the state of peonage. And then when he gets let out of jail, he spent the next three or four months touring around the country. It's amazing how much ground he covers, just preaching at every church about what happened and how he went to jail on the 4th of July and how this was unjust. And so he has this kind of like almost Martin Luther King moment, right? Because being in jail for peaceful resistance gives him a kind of moral authority. Um, And and so ultimately this, this goes to the Massachusetts General Court. Um, They found a white lawyer to argue their case and they won. It, it wasn't a 100% victory, but, but they changed a great deal of how those laws were structured uh, in the Mashpee. And this was all because of William Apis's intervention in this and his ability to play the press and manipulate political forces in particular ways and to publicize it all in ways that only he could really do. Do you see any parallels between his fights for Native rights in his time and nowadays? Yeah. So... I, I, I'd like to think of this as the first successful conscious act of peaceful civil resistance, right? Civil resistance or resistance to civil government in United States history, well before Thoreau's even writing about it. I, I see very similar things happening 
in places like Standing Rock, right? I went up to Standing Rock for one week, and, and the arguments are remarkably similar. Here you have Native people who are fighting for the right to control and have a say over what's happening on their own territory. When I was in Standing Rock, they really hammered it into us that this is peaceful, that, that even when we stand in a line and we're facing a line of police, that, that we should just don't, don't, don't shine hate at them, try and reflect good wishes, goodwill. You're, you're protecting their water and their, their resources as well, not just yours. At Standing Rock, the people who were there were accused and, and often thrown in jail for inciting a riot, just like Apis was. And so it's the same tactics, right? This is always the tactics of power, and it's why civil disobedience is really not just the most effective, but it's the only recourse for the disempowered, because you understand that if you throw one stone, you invite them and give them license to bring the full force of their power down on you. And so you use peace. You project love. And you, you try to make them understand that this is something that you're doing for everybody, not for selfish reasons, and try to win people over that way. This, is, this was precisely Apis's strategy. What's interesting is how those strategies are still so much the same, but how the, even more interesting is how the, the dominant strategies persist and, and haven't changed in all this time. Drew Lopenzina is a professor of American literature at Old Dominion University. He's the author of Through the Indian's Looking Glass, a cultural biography of William Apis Pequot. Drew is fundraising to place an historical marker in Coleraine, Massachusetts, the birthplace of William Apis. A link to the marker website is at withgoodreasonradio.org. Coming up next, the visions of Black Elk. Black Elk was born in 1863 into a long line of Lakota medicine men. He had a powerful vision of saving his people when he was just nine years old. The vision was that he was visited inside his teepee by the spirits of the six grandfathers, representatives of the six sacred directions, west, east, north, south, above, and below. Since the 1970s, the book Black Elk Speaks has become an important source for studying Native spirituality. He also is being considered for canonization by the Catholic Church. Joe Jackson is a professor of creative writing at Old Dominion University. He's the author of Black Elk, The Life of an American Visionary. It chronicles the life of the Lakota holy man. Joe, how did you first come across Black Elk and decide to update his biography? Well, I'd always known about the book that made him famous since high school, his oral biography, Black Elk Speaks. And he was interviewed in the 1930s by John Nyhart, the uh, poet laureate for life of Nebraska, it turned out. And it was a classic. It was um, quite well known. It did not do so well when it was first published. But then it was republished in the 1960s around the same time as the counterculture, the Indian rights movement, and another book that was fairly famous, D. Brown's Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And by the end of the 20th century, a number of American theologians had said that Black Elk was the only true American holy man of the 20th century. Having written a number of nonfiction books prior to this, how did you decide Black Elk is my next? 
Well, I had written a book before this. It was about the losers in the 1927 race that made Lindbergh famous. But what it was really about was the way that Americans create and then destroy um, secular saints and heroes. And I had read somewhere that the Catholic Church, which had tried to suppress the native religious ways back during the um, late 1800s, early 1900s, were now considering making him a saint. And so at that point, that was when I dove into it wholeheartedly. So is he a great Native American spiritual leader and medicine man, or is he a Catholic saint in the making? Well, (laughs) there are a number of um, Native American commentators who don't take kindly to the idea that the Catholic Church, you know, who tried to suppress him now are... um, are considering this. And basically what had happened was that when he was nine years old, he had a threatening disease, and he fell into a coma for about 11 days. And he had this vision, and Black Elk was convinced that if he could interpret this vision, that he could uh, save his people from the inroads of the whites. And he spent the rest of his life trying to interpret this vision. Tell me about ghost dancing. You've written that Black Elk was a ghost dancer himself. For the ghost dancers, the idea was that if you you pray and you adhere to a certain code of conduct and you dance a certain line dance for so long without food and water that many people would kind of like fall out and go into a trance, then a new world will come. And the new world would see the return of the Plain Indians' way of life. The loved ones who died at the hands of the whites would come back young and whole, and whites would disappear. It was supposed to happen by March 1891. There were many Plains Indians that um, were very practical about it. They said, well, you know, there have been millennial movements again, and they've always come to nothing, but we might as well hedge our bets, and we'll do this, and then if nothing happens in March 1891, then so be it. We continue with our lives. You know, because of the Great Sioux War, the Sioux were particularly feared by the Army and by settlers on the plains. And so when they started diving into the ghost dance wholeheartedly, White settlers in the army army became very afraid, and the army was rushed in. Um, um, Sitting Bull died a little bit before Wounded Knee. He was arrested by some Indian police on his reservation far to the north of Pine Ridge, and that was a direct result of his allowing the ghost dance on um, among his people. There was, you know, there was this, there was this fear that there was going to be another uprising of the sort which had created the Custer Massacre. It was just a fear which grew all out of proportion. I am just fascinated by how he lived through such momentous events for his people from 1863 to 1950. So much happened for the Lakota and the Plains Indians. Oh, yeah. When he was born, 
they were still freely hunting bison on the plains. They were. That was pretty much the last glory years of the Plains Indians. I mean, when he was born in 1863, his father had been wounded at a famous massacre in Wyoming. It was called the Fetterman Massacre. And then by the time the Great Sioux War of 1876-1877 occurs, he would have been about 12 or 13 years old when he took part in the Custer Battle. And he um, killed his first of probably three or four men that day. It's so interesting how protective he was of his people and fighting with his tribe. And he came from a long line of medicine men. How did he end up turning to Catholicism? After the Custer Massacre, after 1877, up to the turn of the century, a number of people were dying. And uh, white religions were making inroads on um, Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, where the Lakota lived, the Catholics were ascendant, and Black Elk began to think that his old traditional religion wasn't saving people, wasn't saving their lives. And so he decided to become a, um, out of desperation, out of exhaustion, out of a sense that he had to do something, he became a Catholic lay preacher. And um, he had already had one family, all of whom had died from disease except his son, Ben. Mm. He would um, marry a second Lakota woman and have children by her. But he thought that this was a more powerful religion, so he became a, he became a Catholic lay preacher, and he went around the United States converting Native Americans, and he was credited by the Catholic Church with converting 400 people. But even then he began to feel that Catholicism was not saving his people. They were continuing to die. And so he went back to the traditional ways at the same time that he remained a Catholic. And so he was really, by the end of his life, when he was like 87 in the year 1950, he was both Catholic and a traditional medicine man. He was a, he was a combination of the two. During the 1970s, there was this Sioux thinker cultural commentator by the name of Vine Deloria Jr. He wrote this great book of essays called Custer Died for Your Sins. And in one of them, he wrote this piece about how he is continually amazed by whites that will come up to him and say, you know, I've got some Indian in my blood. I've got an Indian princess in my blood. And there's no evidence for that. Well, now recently, you know, there's been all of that Ancestry.com DNA type stuff. And there are these ads It'll have a a white woman or a white man, and they'll talk about how they discovered that they were one-third Native American. They didn't even know it. And so that old fantasy still seems to survive. Even as we were wiping the Indians out, we were assuming their values. The idea of a warrior culture I mean, you see that cultural term over and over again, you know, the warrior culture, the way that we extol the military and stuff like that, um, and in our movies. And much of that was was picked up when we were defeating the Native Americans, especially during the 1800s on the plains. Mm. So it's something that's part of us yeah, in ways that we don't really understand. And I think that's one reason why... Um, People might be interested in this idea of making Black Elk a saint and 
why there's so many people who go out to the um, the famous Indian battlefields, especially the Custer Monument every year. And um, I mean, it's just something that calls to people at the same time that they don't really understand it. Joe Jackson is a professor of creative writing at Old Dominion University and the author of Black Elk, The Life of an American Visionary. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is With Good Reason. Many Native American tribes are striving to revitalize their food traditions. Over the years, so many people were displaced, relocated, sent to boarding schools, or given government food rations that some tribes no longer have the seeds for their heritage corn or the songs to accompany a particular food ceremony. So leaders are creating innovative ways for communities to learn and practice traditional food ways. Kevin Finney is one of those leaders. He joins me to talk about the Great Lakes Intertribal Food Summit that he co-directed at the Jijaw Camp of the Gun Lake Potawatomi Tribe in Michigan. Kevin, who attended the food summit? The food summit brought together, um, I believe, 39 tribes and indigenous communities, most of them from North America, but South America, New Zealand as well. So the types of foods that we prepared and demonstrated and enjoyed eating, we had corn soup, we had a sort of a wild rice tortilla, we had bread made from uh, pine bark and birch bark, uh, we had um, fish, walleye, we had shellfish from the northwest coast. We had um, maple vinegar, um, maple syrup, and maple sugar. We had uh, moose meat from the community of Onondaga, which they brought. Um, we had locally harvested bison that we actually processed an entire bison and cut it up at the summit, and we utilized the meat from that. And then we had a churro sheep from the southwest, and we had some folks from the community that led us through the process of butchering and preparing that churro sheep. I understand a number of Native chefs came to lead cooking demonstrations. There's a growing movement that has to do with, with food sovereignty in, in Indian country, and a, a big piece of that is cooking and the, and the culinary art. As Native people go through what in this region, um, Anishinaabe people call biskabiyang, which is decolonizing, returning to one's cultural identity and cultural self, returning to traditional food, there's a number of Native chefs across the country who are doing incredible work going back to, uh, to tribal elders and finding you know, seasonings and, and recipes and dishes that have oftentimes been, been largely forgotten by a community and maybe one family has kept alive and, and, or one person. And, and 
you know, I'm from Michigan and I can speak about Michigan and Great Lakes tribes. And historically in, in this area, people had a very, very diverse food system. It involved um, moving with the seasons and, and having this intimate knowledge and connection and relationship with the landscape. But really beginning in the um, probably the 1830s, 1840s, that was impacted tremendously when communities were moved onto reservations the federal government funded missions to quote-unquote civilize native communities. All of that really resulted in the fracturing of native food systems. Um, Certain things remained intact, but um, there was definitely a loss of seeds and seed diversity and a loss of knowledge that once everyone had and now maybe a few people just carry pieces of. So the, the movement which is really happening across North America or across Turtle Island is to pick up those pieces and to begin to put them back in place. You have led groups of people through the forest to forage for foods that they would not otherwise realize are there. Tell me what sorts of foods can be found in that region depending on the season. In the springtime um, in the maple woods, there's a tremendous amount of food, wild ramps or or leeks. They're a, a type of wild onion, which is kind of a real sharp, intense oniony garlic, as well as a wild ginger, um, which is a traditional seasoning. There's a, a type of potato, um, wild potato called macopin, um, bear potatoes, which um, grow in the area, and they have strings of uh, potatoes that grow um, along a little rootlet. But there's really you know dozens and dozens of, of different foods which are abundant in the woods and in the forests and lakes. We've forgotten a lot of these foods which are abundant around us. When you go out on your own to forage, what's one of your favorite discoveries? I know when I was little, I used to love to go into the woods and pull up sassafras to chew on the bark. Yeah, the, the sassafras root is a good one. There's a um, there's a tea, which is one of my favorites, called swamp tea. It grows in um, in northern Michigan in, in, in the bogs and in boggy areas, and it has a um, real leathery leaf which is kind of curled around and real thick and um, it's a short shrub the underside of the leaves are fuzzy and they're orange and it has this incredible kind of a fruity fragrant wonderful flavor um, and and it's hard to find so that's one of the more exciting ones for me I think there was at the food summit a session on how to preserve heritage seeds why is that important? Well, that's tremendously important, and it's it's really a big piece of the larger movement which is happening with indigenous foods. 150 years ago, most native communities where farming had dozens of varieties of seeds which were specific to their communities, and it really took generations and generations, you know, hundreds of years to to develop those seeds through each year, you know, harvesting and then selecting for the qualities that you want, and as the the seed adapts, you know, um, naturally the plant's adapting to its environment and people are also making decisions. So each one of those is a product of both the actions of the plant as well as the actions of the people who are who are harvesting it. We've lost in Indian country 95% of the genetic diversity of seeds. You know, many of those types of seeds were historically grown and crops are, are now extinct. There was a young man at the summit who made a very emotional, life-changing discovery at one of the seed workshops. Yeah, we established a seed bank a number of years ago, and um, really hundreds of 
of seeds have come to the seed bank oftentimes in just, you know, maybe a, a little baggie or a canning jar, sometimes 20 seeds, 10 seeds that um, someone had along with some stories. And, and we've, we've assembled that into the seed bank. Um, and this young man is from uh, the Stockbridge Muncie tribe. He uh, was at the food summit learning about preserving seeds, and, and he looked up on the labels, and he found three different varieties of seeds from his community, which, are, which they no longer have. They haven't had for, for years, you know, decades. And one of those varieties was actually named after his grandmother. And he was so moved by by finding these that, you know, he, he offered to pretty much, he said, well, I'll do anything to be able to bring these back to my community. And um, we were able to say to him, you know, you, you don't need to do anything. These are these are yours. These are your communities. And they've been waiting to return home for a lot of years. This effort to return to native ways of eating, gathering, and growing food, is it still in its infancy, would you say? Yeah, I think it's I think it's at the beginning. It's it's bigger than what you'd think. It's happening in pretty much every every indigenous community out there, but but it's really at the beginning, I think, and it's going to grow as native communities seek to have economic independence and seek to find sustainable ways to uh exist and, and to coexist with with all other living things around them. The the answers are in our food. Our food essentially is is how we relate to the land. It's our relationship, our direct connection to the land itself and all the living things on the land. Are there ways the rest of the country can support Native efforts to reclaim this food heritage? Yeah, yeah, there certainly are. Um, One of the biggest ways that, that people can support is to purchase, you know, Native produced products. Um, a good example of that is wild rice. If you think about going to a grocery store, the average grocery store may have a mix of wild rice, which will be like a box of white rice with one out of every 20 kernels, wild rice kernel. You can go online and search for, for native harvested and native produced wild rice and the quality of the product that you're going to get, which has been wild crafted and and sustainably harvested and then hand parched the flavor is going to be incredible and you're going to pay a little bit more but you're buying into a relationship and it's a sustainable relationship with the land um, there are a number of websites out there that are now selling native foods and um and and that's really a great way to support the movement Kevin Finney served as executive director at the G-Jock Foundation. Coming up next, how to decolonize your diet. We all know foods get Americanized. Domino's Pizza is a far cry from the tender, crusted pizzas of Naples, Italy. But what if you wanted to eat only the foods that are indigenous to your geographic region? My next guest is Catriona Rueda Esquibel. She co-authored the book, Decolonize Your Diet. 
It's a cookbook that ditches fast food culture and instead promotes Mexican dishes that are healthy and rich in plants native to the Americas, like corn, beans, squash, greens, herbs, and seeds. Katriana, what inspired you to write Decolonize Your Diet? It's interesting. Um, my partner was diagnosed with breast cancer, and after treatment was an intense fear about what to eat, what was safe to eat, and what might bring cancer back. And we were drawing from a lot of cookbooks about what was healthy to eat, and we felt like the flavor profiles were really different from what we had grown up with. Um, both of us have grandmothers from Sonora, Mexico. Um, I also have family from northern New Mexico. And so the foods that we were eating were not made for a Mexican-American palate, and so we started exploring the foods of our food traditions and saying, you know, how, how were they originally more healthy than they are now, or how can we make them more healthy? I think that one of the things that people hear is that if you eat right, you won't get sick. That doesn't help people who are sick, right? Luce was the healthiest cancer person I ever knew, right? <laughs> Everything I knew about their lifestyle was very healthy. They ran a marathon, they exercised, they ate well, um, and and the cancer still came. And so some of that we have to think about what you know what has changed in the world around us that has made things like cancer more prevalent. What made the two of you think that this breast cancer might have been related to food and not just bad luck with genes? A study done in the Bay Area showed that Latinas who immigrated to the U.S. had um, lower rates of cancers than Latinas who were born in the U.S. Latinas with higher education had higher rates of breast cancer, and Latinas who spoke Spanish had lower rates of breast cancer. So we were sort of saying, like, what is all that signifying? What is that represented? And it's not representing, you know, that like English causes cancer, but rather that English can be a sign of assimilation and diet can be one of the things that's lost in assimilation. And so that, that really sort of drove our interest. And you found that U.S.-born Latino Americans are facing a health crisis in terms of not just cancer, but also diabetes and heart disease. That's right. And a lot of science has been focused on finding out what's wrong with those communities or what do they have genetically wrong with them that produces these. But since those those problems, those diseases um, appear here and were not originally part of the home country traditions, that suggests that there's something about the U.S. that's bad for health and not something about people's genes in general. And you saw this with your own father and his brothers and sisters. Tell me about their health experience. Right. My father is from northern New Mexico, and his mother grew fruits and vegetables. She made everything from scratch. But in the 1950s, she left her marriage because her husband was abusive. And my father was one of the youngest, and he was left alone um, with his his father and his eldest brother. And their diet kind of changed radically from one that was primarily freshly grown, locally produced, to suddenly eating a lot of canned vegetables or canned beans or canned meats like hash and things like that. And my father now has type 2 diabetes, and many of the people of his generation have that. And I can't help but feel that the healthy diet that he grew up with as a very young child was lost, and this sort of canned prepared food came into the picture, and that that had effect on his later health. Because my grandmother, for example, who had eaten fresh fruits and vegetables, she raised chickens, she um, slaughtered the chickens for her kids, she fed the eggs to her kids. Um, she lived to be 90 years old. 
and was in very, very good health until the end of her life. Um, and that's so different from my father's generation who where they have developed things like diabetes in their 40s or in their 30s. So what is the theory behind your cookbook, Decolonize Your Diet? First, decolonize means what? <laughs> it means a lot of things. Uh, but one thing is that Mexican culture in particular has really been defined by the colonization by the Europeans. The whole worldview changed 500 years ago, and a lot of that also included diet. So the Spaniards brought in things like cattle, like beef cattle, pork, uh, wheat flour, um, but they also fought against a lot of indigenous food traditions. Um, they outlawed things like amaranth and chia, um, native grains that pl- played a huge role in the, in the pre-Columbian diet. Outlawed? Yes, um, amaranth and chia, which are both these really high-potency, high-protein, actually, seeds, formed a big part of the diet. They were, you know, they made breads out of them and cereals out of them. One, one religious tradition was to make a sculpture out of these grains in the shapes of gods and to carry these food sculptures through the city and then at the end break them up and eat them. And the Spaniards looked on this as a corruption of Catholic communion. They thought of it as a devil's corruption. So they outlawed the grains as part of outlawing the religious practices. And your book is part of this larger movement that you're describing towards something called food sovereignty. What is that phrase, food sovereignty? Having control over your food waste, acknowledging how that has been taken away through colonization, right? Native American groups have been removed from ancestral lands. Um, Their traditional food waste have been destroyed. Um, You know, like, for example, like the Plains Indians who relied heavily on the buffalo. The campaign by the Americans to to eradicate the buffalo was really a plan to destroy the food system of the Native Americans. So when people are reclaiming sovereignty, when Native groups are reclaiming food sovereignty, they're saying, we need to take back control of our foodways, which have been lost through displacement, through movement to reservations, through reliance on commodity foods, or through um, limited availability of fresh foods. We need to take that back. And so they do things like start gardening programs where elders are teaching people how to grow the old crops, or where they're producing their traditional crops, but also making sure that, again, like the elders get a box of food, and that the preschoolers get a box of food, and that the food is not just commodified. I think that's a real important part, because like right now, you know, everybody can buy fancy foods, right? Not everybody, but but there is a fancy food sort of level that is available to people of a certain class. Um, wealthy people can buy organic foods, um, but poor people often cannot afford it. And so what these food movements are doing is saying, you know, our food was always originally organic. And so we're going to grow it in these traditional ways and make it available to people, not make it available at a very high price to only the elite who can purchase it, but make it available to people in our communities to sustain our communities and bring health back to our communities. What are some of the other plants and ingredients and dishes that you found when you looked more deeply that have been lost in translation? Well, I think that when you buy Mexican food in the U.S. and you, for example, buy tacos, they tend to be fried and they are often, you know, covered with cheese or sour cream or other things that are not native ingredients. You know, before contact with Europeans, Mexicans did not fry food. The tortillas were heated on the comal, on a on a clay griddle, and things were steamed and things were braised, but they were never fried. And so when you have a taco made from a 
tortilla that's heated on a comal, it's much healthier than a taco made with a deep fried, you know, corn tortilla shell. And what about other ingredients like prickly pear cactus? Oh, prickly pear is actually one of our favorite, both the fruit and the paddles. Um, really a tremendously healthy food. It caught on really quickly when the Spaniards took their, the prickly pear back to Europe, and they, they, they loved the fruit, and they started growing it there, and it really sort of naturalized in areas like Italy and Spain. Um, and they ate the fruit, but they didn't eat the green. Um, and in Mexico, the green, the paddles of the cactus, are a really basic vegetable, a traditional vegetable that's widely available. And it's incredibly nutritious and it's high in fiber and it, it lowers your blood sugar and it soothes your it soothes your colon. It, you know, it soothes you on the inside when you eat it. Um, the cactus is so flavorful and tangy. And then the toppings like the beans and the chile all bring it together. And so it's amazingly delicious. You have said that cooking a pot of beans from scratch is a revolutionary act. How so? I think by cooking your beans from scratch, you're saying, you know, I'm going to go back to the very basics, right? The very basics of Mexican indigenous cooking is a pot of beans. And right now in our fast-paced lifestyle, it's much harder to have home-cooked foods without paying a really high price for them. And to make a pot of beans, we always recommend um, using like a slow cooker to make your beans because you can set it up in the morning and then you come home and your house smells like food and it smells like tradition. For some people are like, oh, it smells like my grandmother's house. Mm -hmm. You know, your book was only published a year ago, and it's already in its third or fourth printing. It's inspired right. so many people to try this approach. Do you hear from them? We do. Um, people send us pictures of dishes that they've cooked. Some people uh, have had dinner parties where they'll each person will bring a different dish that they've made from the cookbook. They actually throw decolonize your diet parties. <laughs> they do. Um, but, you know, it's actually a much bigger thing than us. Like we were what we were doing, because we knew a lot of um, Native Americans who were doing this work on reclaiming indigenous foodways, of reclaiming their food traditions as a way to get back to health. And we were really inspired by people like Winona LaDuke or Devin Abbott Mahuja, who's a Choctaw scholar, or um, the Tahana Otham in Arizona and Mexico, who have been fighting their diabetes by reclaiming their food traditions. And they produce this amazing compendium called From Ii Toy's Garden. And it teaches about not only how to eat the foods, but how to grow the foods and traditional songs that were used in growing and planting and harvesting. And it just opened up to us the full richness of what one could do with something called a cookbook, right? Are there a couple of recipes from the book that you might suggest to people that they might want to try? Well, I always tell people to make tamales from scratch at least once. You know, we grew up with a family member like our grandmother who made tamales and made dozens and dozens of tamales for everybody for the, for the holidays. And sometimes all their daughters helped make them, and sometimes all their families helped make them. But sometimes they didn't, and those traditions were not passed on. And so we end up buying tamales for the holidays, and we'll be like, oh, these are pretty good, but they're not as good as my grandmother's because they had this or they had that. So to start making them again, to teach your family to make tamales, even if everybody's like arguing about what goes inside, and you're also, you know, your hands end up smelling like the masa, and you remember <laughs> that. It brings back memories. Scent brings back more memories than, for example, words do. And so you remember that and you also think like, oh, wow, my family has been doing this for thousands of years. Like, I don't want to be the one who loses this tradition. I want to be one who passes this tradition on. 
Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. UVAHealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. SmithfieldFoods.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Kelly Libby. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Georgiana Reed. To get the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.